Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to Trumpets Time by Missed Apex. I'm Matt Trumpets, and thanks for joining me. This week, we're going to engage in a quick look at some of the details concerning the new regulations and their implications going forward. And I say we're, as once again, I will be joined by Assistant Technical Editor Matthew Sommerfeld to help unpack all the goodies. As a member of the Mist Apex Network, Trumpets Time is an independent F1 podcast hosted at mistapexpodcast.com. This program is safe for work. We are keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. Right, on with the show. Today's episode is called Hindsight is Always 2020. Hey there, Summers. It's getting to be more than a bit of a habit. Appreciate you taking the time to come join us. Always a pleasure to join you, Matt. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, we've had some rather big news today, haven't we? We have. The FIA, FOM, and all the engine manufacturers have had a nice big meeting in Paris. Ooh, and I bet they had some lovely... Uh, pan au chocolat to go along with it hopefully so right but let's face it this meeting we get the first look at what fom which is now liberty and the faa are thinking about well this is really their blueprint for the 2021 power unit isn't it i mean this is they're saying this is where we start yeah, this is basically what they're determining to be the roadmap of Formula One going forward. It's a it's a look, uh, an insight, let's say, at the direction the sport is taking in terms of the power units. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting first look, um, especially as it's quite a dramatic change to what we've been used to over the last few uh, few years. Yes. Well, let's not spoil it. So we start with the good news is that it will be a 1.6-liter V6 turbo hybrid. And I guess if you're a techie kind of person, uh, this is really not a surprise. This is the essential engine architecture that they already have in place, right? Correct, yeah. I mean, basically, we've been running that that sort of 
technical architecture uh, since 2014. And the FIA have been keen um, since the talk of new regulations that they wouldn't actually mess around with the V6 architecture. They weren't prepared to to sort of scroll back towards a, a V8 or a V10, uh, which is what some of the teams were actually looking towards. Right. And in other news that I know will make people happy, um, they're also talking about increasing the RPMs, adding an extra 3000 RPMs to make it sound exactly like those V8s and V10s of years gone by. Yeah, well, I think that's a bit of a misnomer in the way in which that that's been written, because obviously the the V8s were 18,000 RPM. Now, the current power units have a hard rev limit of 15,000 RPM, but they can't achieve that because of the false ceiling that the fuel flow uh, restriction puts in place. So I think what they're actually looking to achieve is around 15,000 RPM rather than 18,000, which is what I presume a lot of people are expecting of these new regulations. Right. And I guess if I look at the wording carefully, it says running speed. So if if you watch the RPMs now, they rarely get above uh, 12,000 or so. So they're hoping to get it up to 15,000. But uh, if you have a moment, could you just uh, explain why it is that they're not really going to 15,000 now? Okay, so it's all to do with the fuel flow uh, restriction that's put in place at 10,500 RPM. There's a calculation that, that's set in place, which prohibits the uh, fuel flow from going above a certain range and obviously achieving more horsepower. So you get to sort of 12,000 RPM and you've already revved to the limit where you're going to achieve the maximum amount of performance. So although the hard limit is set at 15,000 RPM, it wouldn't actually achieve anything more by revving out that far. Um, So yeah, that's the reason why we we don't actually achieve what's set in place. Right. So basically, it's it's a it's a fuel limit uh, because if fuel flow is limited, RPMs above a certain number are useless, no matter how many they technically let you have. That's right. Yeah, because the fuel just wouldn't you wouldn't get anything more from the fuel. So there's no point revving past that that sort of limit, unfortunately. Right. And now as I'm scrolling down this list, I don't really see anything about fuel flow or amount of fuel or fuel limit. On the list, but I do notice that in that same in that same uh, bullet point, they say they're doing this to improve the sound. Now I might be completely crazy, but I'm pretty sure that the biggest problem with sound relative to what people were used to from the V8 and V10 era is the fact that there's a turbo cranked onto it, and that's going to be causing the most muffling out of anything they could add to or subtract from this particular kind of engine. Okay, well, yeah, there's there's a couple of points there. Firstly, obviously, we have uh, the MGUH, which is one of the reasons why we find that the sound is a, a, a sort of a bit lower uh, because it takes away energy from from the turbo itself. But obviously, as you say, that the turbo is strapped to the internal combustion engine and is a natural sound dampener. Um, that will increase with the revs, which is what, what what they're hoping to do here by increasing the RPM range. So you will get a different sound. But for me, it's more about pitch. The V8s were very pitchy uh, because they, they kind of shriek. They're a naturally aspirated engine, um, whereas the, the turbo, as you say, does muffle that, that sound. And so for me, you're still not going to actually achieve the same sort of result we had with a V8 because, you you know, you don't have the same sort of pitch level. Right. And I just know from my own experience in in music that the higher any given sound is at a constant decibel rate, the louder it sounds to our ears. So uh, 
a lower pitched engine can be decibel wise just as loud as a higher pitched engine and the higher one will always sound much much louder so it seems like to a certain extent they're chasing their tails trying to improve the sound because you're not ever going to match what we had with the V8s or the V10s as long as you have a V6 and as long as you're running in in these lower ranges and especially with a turbo. Yeah, essentially, you're right. We are chasing our tails. It will never be the same sort of pitch level that you anticipated from the the previous eras. But it it might make a a marked effect. Um, Obviously, there is tests ongoing as well. Force India have been running a a different microphone position in the last few free practice sessions. um, And there's audio of that about from the onboards. So, you know, that they are trying other things as well to try to improve the sound going forward. Um, it is quite an essential part for the, the fans. Is something that FOM or Liberty have, have come up upon. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're wanting to, to make those changes and raising the rev limit is certainly one way to, to try to achieve that goal. Okay, then let's move on. Prescriptive internal design parameters to restrict development cost and discourage extreme designs and running conditions. Aside from the fact that I like all of those things, it sounds an awful lot like the token system again to me. Yeah, I think that it will be a more defined uh, practice this time. It will be a regulated thing rather than something that can be changed. I think that this power unit that they're looking to introduce is something that is going to be homologated or frozen, something that's not made to be improved throughout the year. Uh, something that you might be able to improve year upon year. Um, again, we're a little loose on details here. So, you know, things where they're saying extreme designs and running conditions means to me that they are unhappy in which the way that the engine manufacturers manage to create their lean burn technology and use turbulent jet ignition for argument's sake. Um, you know, I think that what they're trying to do is narrow the window in order to make the difference between each manufacturer much smaller. Um which, again, we're talking about parity in that respect. But, you know, there has to be some engineering aspect to the sport to keep the manufacturers interested, um, rather than just simply saying that we want 20 different engine manufacturers to supply 10 teams, let's say. Well, yeah, and and that makes a certain amount of sense. I think we'll uh, get to that momentarily when um, when we talk about the political implications of, of all of this and what it, exactly it all might mean. But The next one, I have to admit, has our friend Vortex full of glee and happiness. Removal of the MGUH. And I'll be honest, I really didn't see this coming as it it seemed like to me. uh, It seemed like to me you had Mercedes and Ferrari wanted to keep it. I wasn't sure where Renault was, if they were on the fence or if they were on the we'd like to keep it two side. And only really Red Bull and possibly Honda, uh, I saw rumored, um, advocating for ditching the MGUH? Yeah, well, it's been the talking topic. Um, It's been the go-to area where everybody has had their complaint about this particular power unit is the MGUH and its complexity. But what we have to remember is it is just a motor generator unit. And yes, it does sit in a very high industry area of the engine. You know, it has to rev up to the same limits of the turbo. So it could be potentially running up to 125,000 RPM. But having said that, 
as I say, is just a motor generator unit. For me, the complexity comes from the way in which that the energy is transferred between it and the MGUK. And it's something that is oversighted by a lot of people in the way in which energy moves around, um, electrical energy, that is. So, you know, I, I personally thought that we'd end up with a spec MGUH. That is the direction that I thought we would head towards in order to keep the likes of Ferrari and Mercedes happy because they obviously don't have the problems that everybody else does. But it also allowed then for other manufacturers to purchase that item from the lead people that have that technology. So for me, it is a bit of a backward step because we're losing the energy recovery system that we've come to know since 2014. Right. And before we move on and talk about the MGUK, am I wrong in thinking that it's going to incur some rather significant development cost to make up for the loss of that MGUH going forward? Because they're still talking about wanting to get a thousand horsepower out of the internal combustion engine. And I'm having a hard time thinking they're going to be able to do it with the engine they have at the moment, because it, it depends very, very much on harvesting that energy from the turbo and redeploying it throughout the lap. Yeah, well, there's, there's set, again, there's several layers to that conversation. I mean, we have to consider what the MGUH does physically. It controls the, the, the turbo. So it not only gives um, performance to the turbocharger to reduce turbo lag. So you have to imagine without that, the turbo is going to have to work or, or be delivered um, uh, in a different way um, to, to get the same kind of performance. Um, it also obviously works in tandem with the MGUK to deliver the 160 horsepower throughout the entirety of a lap. So without that and a boost system, which is what they're now looking at instead for the MGUK, we're effectively down 160 horsepower, which they're going to have to find from the internal combustion engine. Now, obviously, we've already talked about them up in the revs, so that is going to counter some of those problems. But we also have to remember that from a structural point of view, the power unit or the the internal combustion engine is going to have to suffer more internal losses to, to create that power. So, again, we're going to have to beef up the internal combustion engine um, to, to be able to cope with the extra demand. Yeah, and and you just mentioned a little while ago that currently the top end of the V6 is, is unusable because of the fuel flow limit. So, presumably, if they're going to be running that high, uh, and if my basic understanding of internal combustion engines hasn't deserted me entirely, not only is the fuel flow limit going to have to be raised, but if they want to be able to access that power over more than, say, a lap or two, you're going to have to have a lot more fuel on board than we currently have because we're ditching, uh, we're ditching, a, um, we're ditching an efficiency technology. So right now we went from 100 to 105 kilograms. Um, but are we going to be going back up to 150? And if so, I mean, I didn't think the MGUH weighed uh, 45 kilograms. So where is the weight savings going to come from to make these cars at least the same weight, if not lighter? Well, again, this is this is something that we'll have to find out in the, in the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, but it would appear to me that the weight limit won't be coming down. Um, simple, simply looking at the way in which that these these changes have been structured you cannot bring the weight down because the mguh doesn't weigh that the kind of amount that would over, overcompensate for at least the 
changes that will have to be made to the internal combustion engine, let alone any per- peripheral things like cooling and the energy recovery energy store. You know, there's there's so many things, and weight is such a, a big impact on the performance of the car itself that, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm a bit bemused as to where we're heading towards because it doesn't appear as if we're lowering weight in any way. Yeah, and if we're not lowering weight then in order to match the performance we currently have in terms of lap time, you're going to have to have with a heavier car more downforce. But then that becomes more draggy and even more of a problem to solve. And we'll get to the chassis prescriptions in a minute. But let's talk about the turbo a little bit. Single turbo, again, that seems to be a surprise because everyone who was talking turbo looked like they were really talking uh, twin turbo to try and make up for the loss of the H. Single turbo with dimensional constraints and weight limits. So unpack that a little bit. What are they really trying to tell us there? Okay, so basically we're looking at something very similar similar to what we have now in terms of the fact that the turbo must lie on the center line. Um, what they're going to do, again, is prescribe something very similar because then it limits where the turbo can be placed. Um they're also obviously then going to restrict how much it weighs. So we can't have any exotic solutions. Um, what I'm confused by with the turbocharger without an MGUH and obviously having um, the requirements we have in terms of turbo lag, how are we going to drive forward the car when we're very low on in, in revs, for argument's sake? And, you know, and that's where we come back to the the, the fact that they're now stipulating maybe we might have a larger MG UK. Um, yeah, that some of these some of these things kind of contradict themselves at this stage, and it'll be much better once we have a, a firmer understanding going forward of the actual prescriptions as to what these things mean. But as it stands, that single turbo with dimensional constraints and weight limits to me basically means that we're looking at a very similar architecture to what we have now, something on the centre line, and probably something very similar to what we have with a Mercedes, a pancake-style turbocharger on either end of the internal combustion engine, uh, because that is the most suitable um, sort of construction or installation for for a single-seater car. Okay, then let's talk about the MGUK. More powerful MGUK. So clearly you think they're trying to make up uh, for the loss of the eight. Now, here's something that I think is interesting and, and, and caught my attention. With focus on manual driver deployment and race together with option to save up energy over several laps to give a driver controlled tactical element to racing, So if I understand that correctly, we're going to get rid of the DRS and allow driver-deployed curs to try and make up the difference. Yeah, it would sound as if it's a push-to-pass system. Um, we currently let, let's just have a bit of a history lesson here. So Kurs, uh, which was introduced in 2009, at 80 horsepower or 60 kilowatts. Uh, now we have uh, the ERS system, which the MGUK part of that can deploy at 160 horsepower or about 120 kilowatts. So what I'm expecting is another double leap. So if we can do 160 now, what I would anticipate is a 320 horsepower gain from Kurs going forward, which obviously is quite a substantial boost um, for the driver uh, when he's coming out of a corner, let's say, um, to be able to attack somebody. And it will change the the perception of racing. Um, And I think that's part of what these regulations are all about, is changing the way in which that the racing happens, the point at which on the track that the attacks, etc., happen. So, yeah, for for me, it is partly a good idea that we've returned to a push-to-pass system. But 
to me, it's also a, a poor thing to have lost what we have with the overall energy recovery system that we had before as well. So I'm really struggling with the concept of both regulations at the moment. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what they actually come up with in terms of how much power the MG UK can actually produce. Because we also have to remember that energy has to come from somewhere. So back in the, the days of the curse, we only had um, a, a storage of 400 kilojoules, which equated to 6.33 seconds of energy. Now, if we, if we work on that same basis for the MGUK, if we simply dispensed of all the energy through the MGUK, which it had recovered, which is four megajoules, it would be empty in 33.33 seconds. So if we then extrapolate that to the larger MGUK at... 320 horsepower, we'd be saying a 16-second um, boost of performance. So 16 seconds is quite a, a decent chunk of time to be spent on a button for the driver deploying the energy, um, but it also gives them that tactical advantage that's been talked about. But it also then doesn't remove the weight issue that we have with the current energy store. So, you know, we, we're kind of fighting one argument against the other at the moment. Yeah. And is it a thing um, that they're going to have to differentiate between deployment and harvesting? So now a lot of times, you know, we see D rates and harvesting and, and we understand that. But with the curves, you would most naturally think you'd want to use the most efficient use of that energy would be uh, on the exit of a turn, for example. But if you're trying to save up enough in your battery to pass somebody, then you're not necessarily going to be deploying it out of a turn. So how, I, I guess you're saying the the issue is, how are they going to be able to both use enough energy to make the engine as powerful as they're claiming they want it to be and still keep this as a tactical uh, thing that can be used by the driver? Yeah, and the, the part of the sentence that comes in as well is the energy over several laps to give a driver controlled tactical element to racing. So what they're, they're basically saying is that the battery will be large enough to be able to supply the driver with enough tactical ability to change the way in which he uses it lap, lap by lap. So let's say he only uses one megajoule in one lap, he saved seven megajoules for the next lap if we've got an eight megajoule battery for argument's sake. But at some point, he will deploy all of that energy and have zero energy for, for a defense. So it will have some t tactical um, complications to it. And it does very much go back to what we had in 2009 and then 2011 onwards with the V8 engine. It's sort of a walk back in terms of technology, um, although obviously we've got a much more larger capacity and some racing in between that time to have learned from. Okay, then. Um, and then the energy store you were talking about and the control electronics will both be uh, standard. And that's that's not really a huge surprise at all, is it? Not, not at all, no, because obviously there are areas of the car that doesn't really have huge implications in terms of development. If we're specifying how much energy can be put in and out of the battery at any one point, it makes sense to have a specification. Um, it also makes sense to make them limited in terms of the amount that can be used throughout a season in order to tie it into reliability. Um, but who's going to supply these items is the main question. You know, we've in the past we've had McLaren supplying, say, um, the the ECU, um, or still do supply that. They supply the screens that go inside the the steering wheels of the cars. But will Mercedes look to supply the the standard energy store and control electronics that they have a, a very good um, sort of 
track record with this sort of thing? Or will we end up with somebody like Magneti Morelli uh, working on something? You know, these are all questions that will be answered in, in the long term. But it is interesting to see that a standard item is looking being looked at for, for those items. It is indeed. And then the last, uh, the last technical thing uh, that I want to talk about before we talk about the, uh, the, the chassis, et cetera, and stuff like that, is intention to investigate tighter fuel regulations and limits on number of fuels used. So this is essentially an outgrowth of Mercedes and Petronas showing up every week with a brand new fuel and also maybe a little bit out of the oil and the whole oil burning thing. Yeah, it, it's just basically the FIA stamping their authority on that situation, trying to rein in what has happened over the, the course of this hybrid regulation. I think that, though, we have to remember that because of the way in which the um, fuel burn technology has been used, um, it was particularly interesting in, way, in the way that the fuel manufacturers actually became part of the sport. Um it's a difficult one in terms of being able to understand what the FIA are going to do in, in, in that respect because there are already quite quite con, quite tight controls on that situation in terms of fuel and lubricants which have come in in the last sort of six months. Uh, but what I would su- suspect is that they're going to reduce it down to one type of fuel per season um, and one type of oil, perhaps with a joker for the first year like they did with the gearboxes. Yeah. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the political implications of all this, but I'm just going to say it now. If I was Patronus, I'd be like, and my incentive to come play in your backyard is what exactly? Because I can't show off any of my technical skill and I can't be a real partner to to making the team better. I get limiting the total amount and limiting the cost to the teams is important, but yeah, I don't know. All right, well, let's talk about this last one, the one that I've saved for last. High level of external prescriptive design to give, quote, plug and play engine chassis transmission swap capability. So does this mean aero kits a la IndyCar or does this really mean more any engine, any chassis, any transmission can be swapped in or out depending upon what the team thinks is best for them? Okay, so th- this is more to do with the fact that, um, and it's something that was that was written into the 2014 hybrid rules as well. It's to do with the the way in which that the the engine or power unit is mounted within the car. Um, it's to stop team uh, engine manufacturers making their designs so very prescriptive that that their suppliers then can't move to somebody else. So let's say we have a Sauber who's really struggling through the first part of the year. They, they they can't get on top with their Ferrari power unit for whatever reason, and they want to swap into a Mercedes. This might be a way in which that, that allows that situation to unfold. However, the problems that you have with that is that the chassis itself is so very much designed around the power unit. So at the moment, the mounting points are very prescriptive, but the points at which, say, the intercoolers, uh, the the radiators, etc., are placed within the side pods aren't as prescriptive. So each of the teams and manufacturers have got very different ways. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's about going about that, so it makes it difficult to make swaps, um, say, mid-season, which, again, I don't see as a massive problem anyway. If you're with a manufacturer, shouldn't you really want to see that season out with them? It's not going to make a massive amount of improvement for you that season if you swap from one supplier to another. So, yeah, again, I think it's just more of a case of the FIA stamping their authority on this situation and saying we want to make it so X, Y, and Z will fit together. Right. Well, I mean, I could see an argument, like if I'm looking at it now and I see the exact same language, prescriptive internal design parameters, and then we see it again here in terms of uh, plug and play, maybe what they're trying to do is make it easier for teams to swap between suppliers, between seasons to reduce development costs and also allow them more leeway to switch later in the season. Because we, I mean, certainly with Toro Rosso and Honda, that's going to be a problem. It was a problem when they went to the to, to the Renault from the old uh, Ferrari units. And it was a problem when Sauber switched from Mercedes. Maybe this is just something they're trying to nip in the bud. So I will give them credit, uh, certainly for thinking about it that way, if that's their intention. Of course, the big problem here is we don't really know exactly what the intention is, because much like almost everything else we get through the FIA website, this is really doesn't tell us very much at all, does it? No, no, we are reading between the lines on, on several of these points, uh, and this is, is one of those particular situations with, with this um, prescriptive design, uh, plug-and-play, etc. But, yeah, as I say, I think it's, as you say, Matt, it, it might help the smaller teams to be able to make a switch mid-season in development terms. Um, how prescriptive you can be in that respect is... It's very difficult, especially when you do things like break the homologation process or the token system um, in the background, like has happened with the hybrid systems. You know, when those sort of things happen from a political sense, it inevitably has an impact on, on, on these sorts of scenarios. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what they have to say about that going forward. Right. And then at the bottom, there is this little a series of meetings will now commence with all the interested parties to discuss and develop the proposal in the spirit of the widest possible cooperation. Now, I got to say right off the bat, that is not true because I emailed 
about trying to get anything from them, and they have not invited me to any meetings at all, despite the fact that I'm a thoroughly interested party. And I'm going to guess you didn't get any invites either, did you? No, I did not. But I think they're talking about engine manufacturers. So unless we're going to group together, Matt, and build our own engine, I think we're kind of out of the loop. Yeah, well... Uh, fair enough. Although it does sound like an interesting side project, and I do have a little bit of extra time, so maybe we should talk off the air about that. Um, but politically, this sounds like exactly what Red Bull asked for, and it sounds like exactly what Mercedes and Ferrari did not ask for. So is this an out-and-out out just win for Red Bull, do you suppose? Well, it's not an out-and-out out win, but it's a big win. Um, it, it is a massive walk back for me. Uh, the, the set of regulations are harking back to a time around 2010 when the original hybrid regulations were brought into play. A lot of what has been said here is part of what was talked about back then as well. So it's almost as if we're, we're just forgetting the last seven years, writing it off, drawing a line underneath of it uh, and moving on. Um, yeah, I do see Red Bull as having had a big political win here. Whether that means that they'll have a win on track um, in that respect as well is quite difficult because Mercedes, irrespective of the regulations, are committed to the sport in in an engineering respect um, with their, their, their place down at Bricksworth. So, you know, whatever happens, I think they're going to produce a, an engine or a power unit that is respectable when compared to the rest of the field. So... Yeah, it's it's a difficult one in terms of understanding the the machinations of what goes on behind the scenes. But I do feel that Mercedes and and uh, Ferrari will feel a little hard done by here. Right, but what I'm curious about is it does say a series of meetings will now commence, and you know I do have some experience dealing with uh, well angry toddlers, and. It just seems like to me that that sort of leaves the door open in terms of what we're really going to be looking at, doesn't it? A series of meetings will now commence. Uh, we could wind up with it with a spec MGUH after all, by time all is said and done. This is really, they're saying, this is the jumping off point for talking about things. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me of the, the position that we're in coming into 2017. If everybody wants to just have a quick think back about the bullet points that were talked about for the 2017 regulations, we were going to have refueling back. I don't see refueling in the 2017 regulations. So, you know, these are just a a starting point, like you say, a jump off point in terms of where we're going from. And I do think that there's going to be a lot of back and forth, especially when we're talking about a lot of engine manufacturers potentially throwing their weight behind their ideas. You know, the likes of Porsche, Lamborghini, um, Ilmore, um, everybody that wants to get on board with, with Formula One, they're going to throw their weight behind what they think is the best idea. And so, you know, we'll end up with something that's a little diluted, perhaps. Um, and we'll have to wait and see where that heads. Yeah, I just uh, to me right now, it seems a little unbalanced in terms of the if you looked at what the various manufacturers were advocating for, it seems like it's all very much gone to Red Bull and and, and maybe Ilmore. And it's just sort of the FIA patting them on the head and say, there, there, there. We know you want your own engine, not from Honda or Mercedes or Renault or anyone else. But it also puts me very much in mind in in the in terms of the regulations that we have now, because we started out with Renault wanting uh, uh, an I-4 
and Ferrari basically saying, uh, no, sorry, we want a V8. And then they wound up at a V6 with the current set of regulations, which wound up making Mercedes happiest of all, I would suppose. Yeah, as I say, it's a difficult situation, isn't it? Because you have all these warring factions effectively trying to, to get the best thing for for their political army. Um, it, it never really ends up with a situation where the FIA just step in and say, no, we're having X, Y or Z. You know, it's a, it's a combined effort to try to draw together everybody's opinion and make best of what everybody wants. And unfortunately... It might sound sad, but I don't think sometimes that's the best way about going about things, especially in this respect where it's going to define the future of the sport yet again. You know, 2021 isn't that far away. And, it, you know, the, the decisions that are made on the um, power unit side of things will also define what happens with the aero side of things. You know, something that we'll see much further down the line because we have to define these these rules first. Yeah. I and and the how the engines work will define how the arrow works and the weight of the cars as you bring up but it just I don't know it to me at least part of what is formula 1 and what separates it from things like IndyCar or even LMP1 is that you do have this element of just crazy technology and and we're starting to see some road applications of MGUH, not just in hypercars, but I think, you know, Mercedes at least seems very committed to rolling that concept out into some of their uh, nicer road cars, their AMG models, at least. And it just feels like, you know, if you're Mercedes and you invested all this money into the sport and you have this thing that that you're moving towards for efficiency. And let's not forget 50% thermal efficiency is crazy. It's nuts. It's amazing. And as someone who's a fan of the engineering and the technical and the team side of it, it's, it, it just, I, I tend to agree with you in a sense, it feels like a step backwards. It feels like we're going back to less efficient engines that burn more fuel. And it, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like there was always a futuristic aspect to formula one that is getting kicked to the curb at the moment. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with that, Matt. I do think that we are taking a step back. I don't want to be too negative about the, the new regulations because at the end of the day, as we know, these are not set in stone. And I would imagine that we'll be having another talk later down the line when things start to change again. Um, and the MGUH makes a miraculous return to, to the, the power unit spec. Um, but, you know, as you say, Mercedes have the AMG 45, I think it is, that's coming out, which is a road-going car with the MGUH attached to its turbo, um, and obviously another hybrid system involved in, in the whole thing. They also have their hypercar, the Project One, which not only has a full-blown Formula One engine mounted in the car, it also has front-axle hub motors. You know, and that is something that was also talked about ahead of this regulation change because Mercedes were interested in incorporating that into the technology that Formula One uses because they've also developed it outside of the sport. You know, so from a practical application point of view, Formula One had a lot of other avenues it could head towards, but it has chosen to shrink back and go down a route which is a little less complicated. And I understand that from 
the fans point of view that sometimes that this sport can be complicated but there are very many different layers to a sport you know some people watch um football or soccer as you guys would call it and they will just literally watch the game but there's so many different levels to that sport as well in the way in which you can be involved in it and understand it from a technical point of view and formula one can be that as well it doesn't have to cater for everybody all at once it can explain these things in very different ways and that's what's frustrating from my point of view is that we're dumbing something down when really there isn't a choice that 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 shouldn't be a choice that had to be made well yeah i would agree with you there and i know that one of the things a lot of people have been very excited about is the fact that this might finally bring independent engine manufacturers back into the sport but so this is a good thing, right? I mean, this should be great. We could have Ilmore, we could have Cosworth. Maybe Ford will come back in. We'll have Ford Cosworth again, which had an engine that worked for a hot second, at least, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, I've, I've mentioned this many times, Matt. Who are these engine manufacturers going to supply? There's 10 teams on the grid. So if we already have locked out Mercedes, Renault, um, Ferrari, and Honda, backed teams that's four teams already locked out so are we saying that we want another six engines on the grid and how does that work from a financial point of view how does anybody actually make any money in that respect so to me it's a very difficult ecosystem to balance um, from a financial and political point of view and so adding more power unit manufacturers might not actually be the right thing unless of course we're going to bloat the grid Um, and do we need more cars that's, again, another question that we have to think about and perhaps a direction that Liberty is keen to, to look at. Yeah, well, I, I do remember seeing a recent interview with Chase Carey in which he talked about having wanting 12 teams. But even even 12 teams, I mean, consider right now Honda supplying exactly one team. If two more teams are added and Honda supplies them, then you've got each manufacturer supplying three teams. So either, I guess what what these regulations will either be, it has to be so cheap that two teams or one team still will turn you a profit in terms of making the engine, which means a lot of specification and very, very, very little development. Yeah. Or else uh, they're imagining one or more of the current manufacturers is probably on the way out the door. Yeah. And, and obviously they know that they, they know the kind of situation that one of the manufacturers is in. So I don't see Mercedes walking away. They've been in the sport for far too long. Obviously Ferrari are, are here to stay. Um, unless of course they don't get their historical payments. Uh, we might see a bit of a problem there. Um, and, and then you just have to look at Renault and Honda. Now Honda are the obvious one for, for a walk away because they've come, they've come back. They haven't got where they wanted to do get, get to immediately. And now we're at a stage where the regulations that they came into are already on the outs. So they might be thinking, well, we've only got one team to supply. We'll see you later, guys. Um, and then that obviously does open the door for, for further manufacturers to come in and, and, and perhaps take up their mantle. But I really do think that if we want to have more manufacturer, engine manufacturers in the sport, we do need to consider the fact that we need a much larger grid to, to, to supply them to. Because otherwise, financially, the whole deck of cards is just going to fall over. Yeah, and that, that, makes, uh, that makes more than a little amount of sense to me. So is there anything else that, that I've missed that you wanted to get in? 
Um, not not particularly. I just think that this was more of a case of ch- checking out an oversight on on what the the FIA have released. And as we've talked about, you know, this is this is a moving target. We're not going to see um, a, a, a proper specification launched until the end of 2018, anyway. So. You know, there's a long way to go yet, and the manufacturers and the FIA and FOM have got a long way to go in terms of talking to one another and getting this uh, getting this thing solved. All right. Well, I'm looking at the time, and we're not quite out of it yet. So if you have a brief hot moment, maybe we could get your impressions of the Mexican Grand Prix. And in particular, I'd be curious if you've heard anything about the multiple Renault failures and exactly what was behind that, because surely they had to know by time Sunday rolled around that they were up against the wall. And yet it seemed like there was nothing they could do to help their engines be more reliable. So how did, do you know how that came about? Do you know what might've caused that? Well, it would appear that um, Cyril Abitbull has, has actually suggested that they were already aware of the fact that they'd pushed too hard on performance versus reliability. So from a, <laughs> A performance from the fuel and the energy point of view, they were pushing the power units too hard. Now, obviously, all of the teams can rein in the, for, for themselves what they want to do, but they're always going to want max performance. The biggest issue with Mexico is the altitude. So, obviously, you work in the turbocharger 20% more than you would do any other circuit, uh, just purely because the, you know you're trying to compre- compress the same amount that you're trying to compress the air, um, and you're actually having to compress more air to make the same amount of power. Um, so, it, it comes down to the cooling parameters, I would imagine. That's perhaps where we've we've had a major issue with with Renault at, uh, at the, the altitude. Um, yeah, it, it's a very difficult one. Obviously, we only had two finishes for Renault uh, at the end. Uh, was it, obviously, in fact, Max Verstappen and one of the Toro Rossos? Uh, it was Gasly, I believe. Yeah, so so Gasly might not have even been running at full tilt anyway. And Max spent most of the race half-throttle, by, by all accounts, just to make, make the end. So, you know, it's not representative of what everybody else was doing on the grid. I mean, we only have to look at the pace that Daniel Ricciardo had in the early phase before he had to retire. And he was, uh, had an astonishing amount of pace. In fact, Horner actually came out and said that they reckon he would have finished third had he not had the problem. Wow. So that, yeah, it's a big, big failure in terms of both Renault and Red Bull, because that's a lot of constructor points that they've, they just chucked away. Yeah, it is. And I guess just um, my curiosity was, I mean, we, we've seen teams like taking hacksaws to carbon fiber to improve cooling. And so what in the package was set so that there was no way they could get more cooling on it once they realized that was the issue? Well, I would imagine it's, it's cool air into the um, compressor. So it's the, the charge air that reaches the compressor that they were having problems with. Now, obviously, they're already running at max because the air box is a certain size. They can't obviously expand upon that. So they're already locked into that p- particular set of circumstances. So their only option then is to scroll back in terms of performance and perhaps take down their overall top speed. That might have perhaps given them you know, the answers that they were looking for. But only Renault will know, and I haven't actually heard anything that suggests the the intricacies of their problems at this stage. Um, but I will be working on trying to get that answer, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we're looking forward to it. And I also have to say, I've read your series about where the sport is headed. 
and great work. Really fantastic. So if you're not going to check out summers.co.uk, you should absolutely be headed there to get the latest and greatest technical information in long format. Yes, he can use all the big words there and he doesn't have to worry about his, um, doesn't have to worry about his quotidian editors at motorsport.com. Yeah, that, they're each 2,000 words, those those articles. So there's nearly, I think there's nearly 5,000 words between those two articles. Um, even that, though, I had to rein in because, uh, you know, I can't have you all falling asleep at the laptop trying to read it. No, no, no. I know. Edit, editing is, is, is always <laughs> the hardest part. It's hard to kill your babies like that, isn't it? It is. Um, just going back to Mexico, though, as well, Matt, there are a couple of things that I'd like to talk about, if possible, and that's firstly Red Bull, um, because we have to look at their performance curve since the summer break. And I think there's it's quite important to understand where they've come from in comparison to Mercedes and, and Ferrari, and they're really starting to make a challenge. Um, it also ties in with the fact that a certain Martin Badowski is no longer at the FIA, um, and perhaps things that were being monitored with some certain degree of um, Technical technicality. Accuracy. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not quite... Uh, so sufficient at the moment um i'm wondering where we are in terms of suspension um and it's something that i'm having a quite a big delve into at the moment in terms of where we are in that respect because the amount of performance that red bull have achieved recently is quite staggering considering that the renault um sort of performance hasn't been at that level they've suddenly made a huge leap forward now whether that's in tandem with where red uh, with where renault have achieved so we're now allowing them to to corner at a much higher um high, higher speed sort of area um is debatable and i do see going forward that red bull could be quite a challenge for for the two teams especially as we head into 2018 because there could be a, a few more toys that could be unlocked let's say now that there's less um, focus on the technical side of things now. Badowski's no longer on the desk. Obviously, there's been replacements put in place, but there's nothing like having somebody who's been scrutinising people very closely uh, for somebody else to come along and try and pick up that trail. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, where we are going forward in that respect. And then we've also got the likes of Renault and um, McLaren. Now, obviously, they've got the same power unit going into next season. And Renault have spent a huge amount of money going into to prepare for 2018. They've also now got the budget from their Formula E team because that's been obviously passed across to Nissan as part of the alliance. So, yeah, there's a huge amount going on down at Enstone. And I do think that that, that, that will push Renault quite a way up the grid. And then you've got McLaren, who are also taking on the Renault power unit. Now, we've talked about this, Matt, and the, the fact of reliability in terms of going from a Honda to a Renault, and it might be like jumping out the frying pan into the fire. But even if they do suffer some reliability problems, at least they're going to have the pace going forward that they haven't had this season, which should make things a, a lot more interesting. It should, and they will have the same engine as Red Bull, so it will once again be appropriate to compare them directly to them. Uh, and obviously, you've had Alonso say that they had the best chassis in in uh, Mexico. So, had he had a Renault power unit, does he think he does he think he could have run, won the race? I think he wouldn't have finished the race because it would have gone boom like most of the rest of them. That would be my thing. He should be happy 
that he actually got to finish with his power unit, grid penalties or no. And we've seen, I mean, I was going to say at Coda, certainly, we saw signs do a very, very, very good job with that Renault. So I think you can certainly ascribe some of the Red Bull performance to an improvement in the power unit, perhaps at the uh, cost of reliability, at least when things are marginal. But the amount of improvement they've had, Red Bull as a team, greatly outstrips the amount of performance that Renault has added on to their engine. That's what it looks like to me. Certainly. And I'm also impressed with Force India. Uh, they had a quite a decent upgrade um, going into Mexico. Uh, Sergio got it first, obviously, in FP1, and then Ocon got it afterwards. Uh, but basically, they had a new set of um, barge boards, a new side pod deflector, uh, which has undoubtedly given them a bit more performance. But interestingly, they ran something and then during free practice, but didn't actually use it in the race. And that is a new floor, which on these upturned floors that we see for 2017, Mercedes and Red Bull have three strikes on the leading edge. It's something that Mercedes started with, Red Bull copied in Hungary, and then Force India tried it in Mexico. Um, And I think it's part of a package that they're looking at for 2018, um, but didn't actually race. It'd be interesting to see whether they use those in uh, the forthcoming races in Brazil and um, Abu Dhabi, though. Yeah, well, it will be very different because we're back pretty much to uh, sea level, um, certainly for Abu Dhabi, and not too far above it for Brazil. So it'll be a different set of um, aero and performance characteristics uh, required for that. Yeah, most most definitely. Um, Although... It's not fair to say that Brazil is also quite high above um, the, the it's a quite high altitude circuit. It, it's I think seven hundred meters above sea level, so it's the it's the second highest circuit on the calendar, um, and quite a challenge still, even at that that sort of uh, altitude. So, yeah, it's still going to provide a bit of a challenge to the the teams and, and manufacturers. Yes, and with any luck, it will storm mightily during the race, which will make it fun for everybody. Yeah, let's have a big downpour and get them on to the wets. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us there, Mr. Summers. Where can our listeners catch up with you? You can catch up with me on my own blog, which is uh, www.summersf1.co.uk. And you can also read Mr. Trumpet's uh, qualifying and race reviews over there as well. Uh, Or you can catch up with me over on motorsport.com, where I work with Giorgio Piala on the technical side of the sport. Excellent. I think a few people might have heard of him. I would hope so. And as for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. My new album is about to start raising funds. It's called Nightscapes, and it's going to be on Indiegogo. You can go sign up on the pre-launch page now. And hopefully by the time you hear this, you'll actually be able to go and give me lots and lots of the monies. And remember... Chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. And staring directly into the past for too long, even with rose-tinted glasses, can be bad for your vision. This has been Trumpet's Time. And there we go. Job done. Perfect. Yeah, thank you so much. This is going to be excellent. No problem. Sorry, sorry, we had to, well, I think we circled a couple of times, didn't we? But... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market